Gospel reading is from Mark chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the sea. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks Thanks be to God. So this uh, chapter, chapter five and chapter four as well, are high drama. There's a lot going on in these stories. Then it's hard to really do justice to everything that Mark is trying to tell us, not just about the episode, but all that I think that he wants us to see in what these episodes represent. Last week we read about this very fateful boat ride across the Sea of Galilee that Jesus took with the disciples. And now they've reached the other side, but it seems it's only Jesus that disembarks. The disciples are curiously absent, and a very ghastly, disturbing figure takes center stage. He's possessed, he howls, he hits himself with stones. He's incredibly strong. And yet, when he encounters Jesus, he, or maybe we should say they, they cower. Jesus, as we saw in chapter 3, is not just stronger, but he is the strong man who has come to dethrone the destructive, the self-appointed powers of the world. And this demoniac cowers and asks to be left alone. When it becomes apparent that Jesus will, in fact, expel the demons, their name is Legion, for there are many of them. They ask instead to be sent into a nearby herd of swine. And Jesus signs off on this, and the herd of pigs rushes headlong into the lake and drowns. Now, just like when Jesus calms the storm and everyone is more afraid, here 
the people see this scary figure now healed and in his right mind, and now they're afraid. They weren't afraid before with this demon-possessed, very powerful person walking around the tombs. But now, upon his healing, they're afraid. When they see this formerly demon-possessed person clothed and in his right mind, the townspeople are not happy to see one of their own healed. They beg Jesus to leave. But the demoniac wasn't really one of their own. He was an outcast. He was judged to be unsuitable to their community, so they removed him. They pushed him far away to where they think he belongs. Mark says, among the tombs or as good as dead. See, what's happened is they've, they've put their collective fear of the demonic, of the unknown, of powers that they don't understand. They've put their collective fear onto the unclean other, upon him, and they've entered into a sort of tacit social contract with one another, sort of a symbiotic relationship has been formed. You see, the townspeople are the righteous one, the indisputable law and order. And this man is the expelled. He is the scapegoat. And Mark tells us that he actually accepts his punishment. He accepts his role in the social contract, night and day among the tombs. And in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Hurting oneself is how many people respond to pathological family systems and to communities of violence. They internalize their unfitness and they begin to play the role of the outcast. They belittle, they demean, they even hurt themselves. It's in some way performative of their identity as the or as a scapegoat for their family, for their community. Well, Jesus comes and he comes on shore and chooses to liberate this man. And it upsets the social order that kept the existence or that the existence and the incarceration of this scapegoat has kept in delicate balance. As we've seen the events unfold this week, as we've seen the events that are really repeats of so many events before, it's hard not to think of our situation and our moment in history through this lens. In fact, I think that we we should, we must, through this lens of scripture. And our system of racism, our system of mass incarceration, may function in a similar way in the U.S., uh, that this demon-possessed man, the role that he served for this community, we incarcerate a larger percentage and larger total number of our people than any other country in the world. And of course, African Americans make up a shockingly high percentage of this imprisoned population. We send people off to be incarcerated in the same way that the town sent this man off. Now imagine in our day, Jesus 
summarily releasing from prison all of those that we had sent away to serve time. No matter his pronouncements of a changed life, his reassurance that these convicts, all two or three million of them, they no longer pose a threat to our community. No matter how he frames it, this mass emancipation would disrupt the social order and it would furthermore blur the lines between the good and the bad. It would undermine the perceived safety of the good citizens of the U.S. that derive at least some of our identity from occupying a society that removes bad people from our sight. Why would this man's liberation scare the town folk so? I think it's because Jesus robbed them of their victim. And I think it also explains why this former demoniac asked to go with Jesus, but Jesus refuses. To take him out of the town would mean he's still effectively an outcast, expelled from the community. This would be functionally indistinguishable from the normal scapegoating mechanism by which the town had chosen him as the evildoer and held him responsible for all the sins of their group, of their tribe. Instead of taking the man away from his community, Jesus gives him a new task. Go and tell of all the good things that the Lord has done for you. Often when the things that we fear most are transformed, they're brought directly into our midst, things that we don't fully understand, that we can't control. Our natural response is fear. When the world is suddenly turned upside down and it challenges the narratives that we're beholden to or that we believe are always true, we react with with fear, with anxiety. And oftentimes, communities from the foundation of the world have relied upon some form of violence or expulsion to rid ourselves of the power that we cannot explain and that we cannot control. Having managed, you see, to collect all of the unearthly demonic forces within that one man, the townsfolk realize that a greater force has come into town, a force over which they have no control. And so they beg Jesus to leave. They'll prefer the status quo than the reign of God if it comes in this form. Because sometimes, friends, the terror that we're familiar with is preferable to the promise of emancipation that we don't understand. The terror that we're familiar with is preferable to the promise of freedom that we don't understand and we can't control. But there's another layer here, and that's in the name of the demons, legion, which functions, I think, on two levels. One is that legion is many of them because they represent the town's collective demons. But I think also Mark 
has this name very prominently, Legion, because the Gentiles on the other side of the Sea of Galilee were under the thumb of Rome, just like the Jews were. And Legion is a rather overt reference to the way in which Rome asserts its brutal reign with legions of military power. Mark is making a connection here between demonic possession and the imperial military brutal power of Rome. And in the exorcism, Jesus is asserting his power over the demons that possess individuals and those that possess nations. People supposedly wanted liberation from Rome, but apparently not if it means being aligned with the one who frees their scapegoat, the one whose power is mysterious and unpredictable. It appears that they'd prefer the shackles of the Roman Empire to God's kingdom. You see, that's just too much disruption to bear, disruption to their identity, their sense of normalcy, and their social order. Now, maybe you're tempted to think that I'm overreading this, but if you have read the Old Testament, as Mark's readers surely have, this politically expedient choice has been almost the default choice amongst, among God's people throughout the story of the Old Testament. God offers release and relationship to rebellious people who time and time again transfer their allegiance from him to some earthly power or symbol. And the Old Testament passage from Isaiah that we read this morning is one such time that that informs our passage in Mark. You see Mark referring back to it. They dwelled among the tombs. They ate abominable things like pig flesh. And they chose allegiance to the nations of the world that were like smoke in God's nostrils. This is the background that's informing this story that Mark is telling. When we willingly ally ourselves with the forces of empire, the forces of destruction, the forces of violence, when we willingly ally ourselves with an industrial incarceration complex that scapegoats entire populations of people, when we claim allegiance to Jesus, but then we either fully align ourselves or we simply collude with unknowingly forces of violence that wreak havoc upon the most vulnerable. Friends, the, the very somber realization that we need to draw from this passage is that we uh, ally ourselves with those forces that are smoke in God's nostrils. The townspeople seem to have had a good thing going with legion. He, they, carried the town's demons for them, outside of town and mostly away from view. If they had demons of anger, of violence, of racism, that they could put them all on legion, just like we scapegoat entire groups of people today. And the best thing about this situation is that they didn't have to find new scapegoats, new victims all the time. With legion, 
They would tie him up maybe rather loosely so that sometimes he could get away and run around the tomb stoning himself. And any time they needed to expiate some additional guilt, they could just chain him up again and start the whole process over. And that cycle kept running. Jesus, you see, comes and he puts an end to all that. First by healing this man, but then also by becoming the ultimate scapegoat for all of their sins, for all of our sins. You see, the religious leaders in collusion with Roman imperial power did the same thing with Jesus that the Gerasenes did with Legion. Outside of Jerusalem, among the garbage and among the dead things, they put all of their demons on him and crucified him. He offered himself up as the scapegoat for all of the sins that could possibly be laid upon him. But God raises him on the third day, and by doing so, he is saying, my son, he was innocent, yet you made him carry all of your, ver- all of your burdens. It's a very strange and mysterious way for God to deal with evil. It inserts a sort of upside-down power in our world that is ultimately unmanageable, and we don't like unmanageable, especially if it upsets our social order. If it disrupts the self-serving ways that we've learned to identify ourselves, if it challenges our narratives about the how, how the way how the world is and the way it should be. But Jesus becomes the scapegoat for the entire world in order not to control us or to manipulate us, but that he might bring us forgiveness and real healing. The liberation that we're looking for in all of these false gods. He comes to scoop us up out of our death dealing and scapegoating systems that we create to maintain our own sense of righteousness, our own security, to scoop us up and to draw us into his loving embrace. And of course, this embrace comes with the calling to also stand with those who continue to be scapegoated until that day that Jesus will finally bring his peace to bear upon our broken world. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we could divert our eyes of what's wrong with us internally and look to the world and assign blame, look to forces that are clearly forces of domination, and we could be comfortable by calling out their sin. Or we could look at those people who are crying out for mercy or crying out for justice and maybe assign them some kind of blame. Or we could look at ourselves. We could inspect our own hearts. We could see where we have knowingly cooperated with evil or simply allowed it to stand. The way that we have colluded with the forces that 
destroy and offer destruction and bring destruction in our world. Father, help us to do the, the hard work of inspecting our own hearts, of asking you to be that guilt carrier for us, that scapegoat that takes on all of our sin, that we can be free. But let it not make us laissez-faire about those things still left to do in our lives, to work on. Father, let it restore us to hope in such a way that we deal aggressively with all of those patterns of behavior that harm not only the world, but harm ourselves. Father, I pray that we would put an end to scapegoating others, to excusing ourselves, because you have become the ultimate scapegoat on our behalf. And I pray as we come to this confession and we come to this table, we see that so vividly depicted that it changes us from the inside out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table of the Lord, we are going to confess our faith this morning using the Heidelberg Catechism question 32. If you are willing, would you confess what we believe? Why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with the free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all, crea over all creation for all eternity. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body. It is given for you. Eat this all in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this all in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread or you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, for many centuries, Christians have proclaimed the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, he is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the peace. These are the gifts of God, and they're for the people of God. So feed on him in your hearts by faith and with great thanksgiving. Take a few moments now to either partake or to serve someone else in your household, and we'll come back in just a moment together. <laughs> 